0: Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms.
1: We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking
0: In. Becky, I'm really excited about this one, mostly because I love train wrecks. Any train wreck, <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> Theranos. We work. We work train wreck. Give me your train wreck. And I my brother always makes fun of me. He's like, the messier the train wreck, the more you're into it. And I am, he's right. I will watch anything and everything and read. So I'm like, I was kind of fangirl about talking to Elliot. About right. So
1: we're guys. We're talking about our upcoming podcast with Elliot Brown, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and co-author with Maureen Farrell of um, the great business book, "The Cult of We." And I would note that since we taped this a few weeks ago, Kiana, that book has shown up on a bunch of best business books of 2021 lists. So I think our listeners are in for a treat here.
0: And here's I think what the interesting part here is is that especially if you work in tech and you work in comms. This book is fascinating. I mean, the way that Adam sort of ran that company. And then if you look at it from the lens of a communications person, first of all, they cycled through quite a number of comms people, which is not all that surprising when you read this book, but it is, it's very interesting to me. I think from our vantage point of looking at when companies have really good PR And it's actually a disaster in the background and sort of how do you reconcile as a comms person knowing sort of what's going on and still trying to shape a narrative, which is a lot about what WeWork was doing. I mean, fundamentally, and Elliot talks about this, WeWork was a real estate company pretending to be a tech company. And the narrative that they were shaping, I think they were doing PR like they were a tech company. And that wasn't actually the case
1: right just like we talked about in the podcast we talk about mattress companies masquerading as tech companies coffee companies but yeah i agree with you and i think this this is a great interview it's a great book if you haven't read it and it does bring up a lot of relevant issues for tech comms professionals especially right now another example of you know the pr marketing getting ahead of the company is of course theranos that trial the elizabeth holmes trial is still going on Uh, we've seen a lot of big tech companies going through crises and you know I think it raises a lot of questions for us like if you know your CEO is in trouble or is overselling the story how do you get the CEO to take your advice you know how hard do you push and and then maybe too when do you know when it's time to leave because your reputation is ultimately at stake right
0: and I think it was interesting. I mean, there's a lot that we actually don't talk about in the podcast that is in the book, and it's just a lot about sort of Adam Newman's personality and where Rebecca Newman sort of comes in, and there's a lot of tequila that is drank in this right, book. right, right.
1: <laughs> Not a lot of that in my workplace, but, um, no, but hey, at uh, we work apparently it was all the time.
0: A lot of pot, apparently.
1: Yeah, yeah, that too.
0: But also, I mean, you know, you look at, and you and I both work in a world where there's a lot of money being invested. And a lot of WeWork's sort of enablement was how much money was being invested in this company. And at one point, it was a $47 billion company. It was a billion dollar company when it's only had a few leases, which seems insane. And so it was very interesting to me to sort of watch that play out in terms of a business that's very linear Acting like it's scaled. And so, watching that while we have these incredible multiples and lots of fundraising happening, you start to get the sense of, like, oh gosh, is this okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, this is, this is in many ways a story for our times, right? And it's a cautionary tale, obviously. And it's a cautionary tale of what happens when you have a larger than life founder, you have too much money and you're surrounded by. Various groups of people who are enabling you and, you know, we've seen versions of this story before, but it's a good one and uh, it's a train wreck, which is why uh, we liked it so much.
0: And I I think it's so interesting to to talk to Elliot to see sort of, you know, he had this front row seat and it is interesting to me to see what it's like from his point of view um, and how it became a book and then a documentary and then a movie and all the things. But it is very interesting to just hear where he starts to say, like, oh, man this is not adding up. And we should say we did interview him the day that WeWork went public, which was super coincidental.
1: Right. Via a spec, which was super interesting because, you know, one of the biggest plot lines in the book was the company realizing it was running out of money and that it had to go public in order to raise enough funds to stay solvent. And then how that IPO fell apart. So again, super salient, super timely. And I hope everybody enjoys the interview.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Well, today on Just Checking In, we're super excited to speak with Elliot Brown, the longtime Wall Street Journal reporter who is also co-author, along with Maureen Farrell, of the excellent business book, The Cult of We. And honestly, we could not have had predicted that we'd be doing this interview right after WeWork finally achieved that sought-after milestone of an IPO, but through a SPAC. So we'll have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Elliot. We are so, so, so excited to have you here today.
2: Happy to be here.
1: All right. Well, I'm just gonna dive in with the news of the moment, which is the fact that WeWork did finally go public via a SPAC. I mean, after all your reporting on this company for the journal and for your book, did you ever think you'd see this day?
2: There was probably a conversation with an editor a little over two years ago while WeWork was filing to go public then, or had filed to go public then. But the bad news was going up, and we were on a call, and I was like, "I just don't think they're gonna go public." And there was sort of silence. Like, really? Is they? come to that. WeWork always has this magical way of finding the sort of easy money out there or the most overfloweth chunk of the the finance system. So that's what SPACs are today. That's where they would gravitate to. And at least on day one, it seems the public markets like them. They're up like 30% from the original uh, deal price.
0: You talk about in the book that 254-page doc that came out with their financials was sort of the beginning of when the fawning over WeWork was starting to turn a little bit. Had you seen it before that? Or what was the moment for you where where things were like maybe not adding up?
2: I'm a little naturally skeptical of a human. I originally met Adam in 2013, and he was like really pushing. He's like, you're a real estate reporter. Why are you covering us? We aren't a real estate company. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Uh, but then they kept pressing that point. They had told a landlord to call me to tell me that they said they weren't a real estate company. I was puzzled by that. And then the, the light bulb moment was when I, I first learned of their valuation, which was at the time $1.5 billion. And at that point, it was like, Oh, how could, like, I, I knew, I was a real estate reporter, I know what a building's worth. They, you know, had a small number of leases that where they didn't even own assets and uh, were worth, you know, the size of a pretty big building, um, far in excess of the size of the leases. So I, I sort of realized from then on that what they were doing was portraying themselves to the market as something like a tech company or a growth company when, it, you know, in reality that they were a real estate company and the reason they were doing that was to get a bigger valuation.
1: And that's I mean, that's kind of the central tension in the book. And and it's something that you started to see with other companies, too. Like, is it a mattress company or is it a tech company?
2: Right. Mattresses are are one of my favorites sitting in New York, just observing the economy where you had all of these things that were so obviously kind of traditional products uh, getting valued like software companies because they fit the. Uh, general template of what a software company and and growth company in Silicon Valley says. And so, yeah, it it wasn't a mattress company. It was reimagining the sleep economy or whatever. You had coffee companies getting valued like tech companies and mattress companies and, and the Uber for everything could happen and everything was valued, you know, like it was a really profitable enterprise before Uber had even figured out if it was going to be profitable. So these things sort of like catch on in the herd, it gets really excited about things. And then I think often one of the kind of main points of the book is you have smart people who just weren't thinking critically and taking a breath to look at like, hey, this thing that says it's a tech company actually just subleases office space.
0: There's WeWork, and then of course the Theranos trial is happening right now, and that's maybe similar in the sense that there's the PR and the marketing was a whole lot better than what was actually going on. You know, you said that you're you're naturally a skeptical person. How do the WeWorks and Theranoses of the world sort of have implications on tech reporting? Have, has this has made you guys even more skeptical?
2: In the middle of the 2010s, things were at this sort of Fevered pitch of non-skeptical tech press, and so if you look, that's when Elizabeth Holmes was on the cover of Fortune and Forbes. That that's when Hyperloop was on, uh, you know, the cover of Forbes. That's when Adam Newman was on the cover of Forbes. Uh, there, there's a recurring theme here with that one because I, I actually think it was really problematic that you had this organ of the press taking the the stories that that companies were telling about what they wanted to see in the future, and sort of. Presenting them as reality today and you know that that that's what venture capitalists do like that That's their job. Their job is to sort of look at the future and, and see it's something that could be big and Kind of push a company to get there, and they often talk about it like it's in the future before uh, it is. Um, but <laughs> the press—that's not their job. Our job is to be like, well, it's great that you're you plan to disrupt this industry, but today you're losing three dollars for every dollar you take in, and you know your product fundamentally loses money. So, like, maybe you'll get there, but let's look, kind of look at it more soberly and that wasn't really happening. So I think then you know fast forward but Theranos was a big turning point and and that was a colleague at the journal um John Carreyrou who who really I mean that that was because of the Wall Street Journal that that company fell and it was just exposed uh, as opposed to the public sort of changing its mind about a company. And that I think woke up a lot of the the press and and the established outlets to ramp up reporting resources out here and start to, you know, realize that um, maybe everything isn't this halcyon future of, you know, utopia. And maybe we should look at things like profit and losses, for instance.
1: But looking at the environment today, that's interesting. And I I agree with a lot of what you said. But like today, we still have a, you know, an arguably pretty frothy market. (laughs) You know, Um, a lot of the companies that are going, I mean, you know, I can speak from my firm, a lot of the companies that are going public are, you know, B2B companies, you know, stuff that's very different than a WeWork, you know, real companies. Do you see that change, though, because the market is still frothy? And are things really that different? Or do you think things are?
2: Good question. I I mean, one answer is sort of, well, it turns out the press has no effect on anything. So... (laughs) Uh, that, that's one interpretation. I mean, I sort of. I
1: wouldn't say <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I,
2: I write about some of these electric vehicle companies that have no revenue and are valued in the billions. And, you know, some of them, like Nikola, is a good example. Like, literally, the CEO or the founder has been indicted for fraud, and the price is still the same as when it went public. Uh, it's above when it went when public, you know, like a year and a half ago. Um, and the company hasn't sold any trucks. One of the things that really has changed is even though you have the very frenzied environment for like software companies, you don't have the, the sort of consumer bubble of, you know, subsidized consumer products or subsidized rides. That That's ended. Uh, like if you were to say today the, the equivalent of what Uber said in 2014, where like I'm just going to do something that needs $15 billion and we're going to be the Amazon of, of X consumer product, I don't think many people would support you in that.
1: Elliot, I wanted to talk a little more about your reporting of this specific WeWork story, because, you know, I obviously remember reading it in the paper before it became the book. Two questions. Maybe one is, when did you know that maybe this was a book, that this was more than just a lot of good investigations that you were writing as stories in the paper? And then two, I'm interested in your relationship with the company. Like, was it friendly and then it turned sour? Was it never friendly? What was it like to deal with a company like this, where, as you said, marketing was a key part of what was propelling the story? Story.
2: Early 2019 through the middle of 2019, I was just collecting more and more anecdotes about Adam Newman and, and doing sort of more stories on conflicts at the company. And it had become the country's most valuable startup after Uber went public. Like, it was just so clear to me that something, either it was going to implode dramatically in some form, or it was going to, you know, sort of take over the world and we'd all be working out at WeWorks. Either way, I figured there was A-books, probably in the summer, it got to be much more clear that there was a book to be had in fall 2019 when everything was imploding. So, like, the the deal actually came together really quickly. It was right before Adam was pushed out as CEO, we started talking seriously to a publisher and then the day he resigned that afternoon is when when an offer came in from the editor that we ended up going with you know in terms of the relationship with WeWork at first it was it was cordial and friendly i mean adam in 2013 sort of welcomed me into the office and then we talked for a while and then he opens the door to his office and he he tells yells at the whole staff This is Elliot. He's a friend. Give him whatever he wants. I mean, you know, at the time, I was like, wow, he really likes me. And then I realized, hey, he probably says this for everyone. If you fast forward, I think they gradually, you know, my stories kind of continued to point out in increasing levels of acidity that they were a real estate company with a tech valuation. And I think they at first tried to sort of like, you know, be nice to me and see if they could convince me otherwise that way, because they, they fundamentally didn't believe that that they didn't think there was some mass they didn't have some master plan to obscure that they were a real estate company. I think they actually convinced themselves that they weren't. Um, and then, uh, you know, then it eventually just got hostile. I mean, they they would sigh when I would would be on the phone. like they would still put executives on the phone to talk to me on background. but um it was a lot of just like, come on, the day they announced they were going public, and I sort of, you know curtly asked, uh, like, are, you're just doing this because you need money, right? And it was like huge sigh. Like, I think we're done here. And they want to hang up. And it's like, look back in history. And it's like the company nearly went insolvent in November. Like they absolutely needed to go needed money. That's why they had to IPO. So
1: the individual stories in the paper were incredible. The one I remember, I think I was on like, this was in the before pandemic times, so I was on a Caltrain going up to San Francisco. And the it was your story. The lead of which was about the marijuana on the <laughs> private plane to Israel, that one. And it's just like, I read that and I was like, mm, this does not look good. Like, w- w- that was a turning point,
2: right? Yeah, that that's the story that based on the timing, essentially, that story led to Adam stepping down. You can revise history and, and, and probably look back and I, I just can't imagine he would have been the CEO of a successful IPO company. Maybe he would have been there an extra week, maybe he would have been there an extra few months, who knows? Yeah, so that story was the result of of a collection of anecdotes over the prior sort of nine months or so about basically his erratic behavior. How, how you have this guy who's acting extremely un-CEO like and is a megalomaniac. That that was the implication. I mean he he told people he wanted to be president of the world and you know was just clearly obsessed with with gaining That's wealth. That's always and... a red flag right there. <laughs> <you know. laughs> If
1: someone tells you that, you have to kind of be like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, not a real position, not a real position. Okay.
2: The megalomania is a thing that does come up a lot. I mean, I think it's sort of like a phenotype that venture capitalists tend to select for, particularly at some of these funds. Like Founders Fund says on its website, or it did last time I checked, they want founders with I think they use like a little bit of megalomania as the term. It's something like that.
1: All right. Come on. We have to curb the VC okay, bashing. Okay, okay, okay.
2: You know who I work Sorry. for, Ellie. Come on. Come on. I'm,
0: I'm fine with it. I have zero issue with it. You can do what you want. Um,
1: <laughs> She's just, her company just backed by venture capitalists. So it's not as big. Yeah, we're okay. good.
0: All right. We've got all their money, but that's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Briefly on the on the rest of the story. So like the, the other things that, that I think were kind of shocking was how he would just, you know, rule by decree and fire, tell people to fire 20 percent of the staff because he decided they had too many beat players one day. And, you know, then he like, yeah, we had a fair amount of uh, marijuana anecdotes and then the plane anecdote, which was that they were flying to Israel and then. You know, there's a party on board, and then they didn't finish the pot. So somebody stuffed it in a box of cereal, and then the owner of the jet found it. And was kind of horrified because they could get in trouble. They, they figured for transporting marijuana across borders. And so they pulled the jet. And so th- that, that was the thing. Like, honestly, you know, smoking pot on a plane is not, a, if you have a private jet, is, is not a high crime. The issue was that the CEO of a $47 billion company, he was putting himself in jeopardy and, and the company in jeopardy by doing that. And it was by no means the, the sort of only example like that.
0: The biggest thing for me, I think, was working in tech for as long as I have. And I've I've been working, you know, for a tech company before. It was cool to work at a tech company. But listening to the book, I was trying to imagine what it would be like if I was at a meeting at eight o'clock at night and the CEO came in and passed around tequila shots (laughs) and how I would take to that. (laughs) Honestly, I probably wouldn't take to that well because I'd want to be home. There's also a great Hulu documentary, which I think is based on the book that you guys wrote. Is that right?
2: No, it's not officially based on the book. Well, yeah, they they interviewed us. And, you know, a lot of the material, the, the original source material out there is Wall Street Journal stories. But now anytime there's a big story, it seems that like a zillion documentarians try to do a documentary. And then you also have this kind of rush of people trying to do a Hollywood streaming series based on a true life story. Uh, but so that happened with with WeWork, and so like we sold the rights to our book before we'd even titled the book or had any idea what was going to go in the book. It like eventually sold to Amazon, but nothing resulted. And then a bunch of other people tried to do things. So then this this producer tried to originally partner with Bin- Business Insider, and then they partnered with Forbes um, to <laughs> tell the story of, of WeWork. And they got some really cool clips of this video where the IPO roadshow video that Adam shot basically two days before they called off the IPO. They found a lot of employees to talk on the record. And, you know, they talked to me and Maureen, um, sort of about the whole process. And there were a lot of people that had no idea what it was because I was in this bubble where everyone knew what it was. It aired in April yeah. and suddenly was like just getting constant texts from friends from high school like, saw so you on Hulu. It's like, well, thanks for reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs>
1: Them. TV, right. My experience is TV appearances produce a higher multiple of, right, emails and calls from people that you know. And are, parents. Like, written <laughs> but, but there is a... Yeah. And parents, too. And parents, too. But there is a movie, right? It's like Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway are going to play the Newmans or something.
2: An Apple TV show. It's like eight hours or something like that. They just finished up filming. So, yes, this this was the one where we, we, we were a little saddened. There, there were really two competing projects. We, we you know, had sold the rights to a producer who sold it to Amazon. And then uh, this Apple TV one, which is based on a podcast that kind of was rushed out after the fall of WeWork uh, called We Crash. The Apple TV bought the IP to a podcast, <laughs> which is based on, you know, newspaper stories. And the TLDR is that Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway are playing Adam and Rebecca, and it's going to be on Apple TV sometime. And uh, I look forward to watching.
0: I actually was going to ask you who you think should play <laughs> Adam in the movie, but I don't know if it gets better than Jared Leto. I don't know who else I would I would put in that spot.
2: Apparently, the Daily Mail I I haven't found it, but apparently the Daily Mail has like videos where someone was saying they recorded him from afar while he was filming this. And he apparently sounds a lot like Adam. So I'm very excited for it.
0: Well, where do you go from here? Like what's kind of piquing your interest or what are you super interested in covering? I can imagine at some point you're over (laughs) covering WeWork. So where do you go from here?
2: All I want to do is not write about WeWork anymore. I've been pretty interested in, in SPACs. You know, I've been pretty interested in some of the themes from WeWork. Uh, and honestly, you know, sort of greed—that's a word that that didn't come up much. But a, a recently, a bunch of venture capitalists have sort of expressed concern to me in, in calls we've had about you know, stories I'm working on, where they're like, "I actually think there's been this real turn where so much money is now leading to a lot of greed that, that we didn't see." Again, just sort of a product of there being so much money out there. People are like, well. I want a bigger paycheck. I think there's a lot of stuff there. And then, yeah, in, in SPAC land, um, there's a lot of companies that are, it's just a process that allows essentially startups with visions to go public based on their visions. And, and that's kind of a new thing, an IPO traditionally, like you're talking about what you've done. You aren't allowed to talk about the future or else you'll get sued. But the rules are different for, for a SPAC. So uh, in a SPAC, which is essentially just, you know, a merger with a, a pool of money that's sitting on the public market that does nothing. We bring a startup public and then, you know, people buy or sell the stock based on what they think the future is going to be. And a lot of people look at these PowerPoint charts that they, they file with the SEC that say we're going to be really profitable in 2028. And uh, the, the price goes up a lot.
0: That is so interesting to me. I worked for Tableau, which was a bootstrap startup that went public, and the notion of like forward-looking statements and the things that we were just not allowed to say was so ingrained in my brain. And then now it feels a little free for all. But you can call me old school. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it it is a completely different world. Like you would always be able to, as a startup, tell that to venture capitalists. But a retail trader, I I, I don't think looks at a chart and is like, wow, I wonder what the risk is for uh, this company actually generating 30% profit margins. And you know, a venture capitalist would know, like, well, actually, every single company that I ever see all day long is promising between 30% and 80% profit margins, and it never happens. But like, a retail trader doesn't really have that context. Yeah, that's
0: fair.
1: One last issue I just wanted to get your read on was SoftBank's role in WeWork. Because in reading the book, I think I did not have an appreciation until I read the book of the extent to which massa and softbank seemed to push my interpretation and in reading it was seemed to push adam to be even more aggressive than he would have been otherwise
2: yeah i think the appropriate analogy is it was a giant tire fire and softbank Poured, you know, many more mounds of tires on top of of the tire fire. WeWork was always crazy. I think that some people think it was all SoftBank's fault, but WeWork was buying a wave pool company and flying rented private jets before SoftBank came in. But then what SoftBank, yeah, r- really did is speed things up. And there's this anecdote that Adam flies to meet Masayoshi Son for essentially the first closing of the deal, where Masa agreed to give him four billion dollars, and they're getting an initial chunk. And masa at lunch has him meet this. C- CEO of Didi, uh, Cheng Wei, they're sitting next to each other and, and Masa is like, you know, the reason that Didi beat Uber in, in China was uh, because Cheng Wei was crazier than Travis. And then he says this, this sort of anecdote of, like, you know, if, if there's in a fight, who wins, the crazy guy or the smart guy? And the answer is the crazy guy and so you you need to be crazier and so adam like admittedly to you know he would call himself he's like i i always thought i was the craziest person i knew but but now he told me to be crazier and so indeed like he he then makes we work kind of do bolder, more insane things and suddenly starts wanting to do things like buying Lyft and, and buying sweet green And uh, he buys a jet. And, you know, they go on this acquisition spree that, that later, I mean, they, they bought numerous companies for 100 to 250 million dollars, like three or four of them. They sold them for fractions. Uh, like one of them was like 120 million to 10 million, just because Adam wanted growth and, and sort of, you know, to see WeWork as something far bigger than offices. So he tried to sort of rapidly expand into all sorts of other things. They started an elementary school where three-year-olds could learn about entrepreneurship. SoftBank was the main enabler um, and certainly the provider of most of the billions that came in. I mean, they gave them over $10 billion um, <laughs> for a company that's today worth $9 billion, not a great sort of use of money. Yeah, I, I think if you were to point the finger at one enabler, it would be SoftBank, but there's a lot of other you know investors in there. The bankers uh, don't come off looking great in our book. I mean, Adam wanted to hear a big valuation, so then you have these banks that theoretically are supposed to be sober advisors. Saying like, yeah, sure, you're going to be 96 billion dollar company.
0: I actually, one of the things I really liked about how you guys wrote the book was the context that you sort of created around why SoftBank was so hot on WeWork, and then why the banks, you know, the the whole context around the bankers who had missed Facebook or, or Twitter, who were who were literally just like, I have to find the next one, and and sort of why they were so blindly investing. I I thought that some of the context that you gave actually almost made it, it didn't excuse it, but it explained it, the behavior.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was a real fascinating thing for, for Maureen and I, who like we talked about sort of, you know, after we decided to do the book, we're like, you know, there must be a more to the story between why SoftBank came in. Like Masayoshi Son didn't just meet with Adam for 12 minutes and then decide to give him $4 billion. And you know, surely Fidelity didn't agree to come in six months after T Rowe Price at twice the valuation just because they were mad that T Rowe did it. And then you learn, and it's like, you know, there really wasn't that much more to the story. Um, So, like, I think the the sort of like the the broad distributors of billions in the financial system were a lot more reckless than we realized. And uh, everyone had their own incentives. Like SoftBank had raised a $100 billion fund, and it's not very easy to spend that. And you need to, like, find places to throw money, and you need to sort of believe things that are kind of unbelievable. And so that's exactly what happened. It was, was, you know, very soon after Masayoshi Son had gotten his commitment from Saudi Arabia for most of the fund, or the biggest chunk of the fund, in a rapid, meeting with Adam was like, let's give you $4 billion, which is, again, not the way you would think that the financial system works.
1: Yeah, lesson to founders, you don't always have to take the money. Taking money you don't need (laughs) is not always a positive thing.
2: Yeah, I find there's a couple types of founders. There's some that seem, you know, you talk to them and they're very focused about business. And then there's others that they just they come alive when you talk about the fundraising game. Um, And I think the danger clearly seems to be more on the latter category. For
1: sure. All right. Well, Elliot, fascinating stuff. I think Kiana and I would both obviously highly recommend the book. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Highly, highly. (laughs) (laughs) Love the book. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman.
1: Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Carcos.